0: Hi, writers. Welcome to another episode of our podcast on writing fiction. I'm Jim Thayer, and I'm glad we're together again. Sometimes we talk about big techniques such as plotting and character development, and other times we focus closer and discuss the techniques of making our sentences shine, which we'll do today. Most publishers will tell you, I think, that the story of is the most important aspect of a novel, the, the plot. Michael Korda, the editor-in-chief of Simon & Schuster for many years, said that the three most important words in novel writing are story, story, story. But why not create both? A strong story that is told with strong writing. We as writers should try to give the reader the pleasure of beautifully crafted sentences. How do we do that? Albert Einstein said, Make everything as simple as possible, but not simpler. A key to good writing is to be, quote, Specific, definite, and concrete, which is what Strunk Strunk and White said. You don't want to talk or write as did the person who Abraham Lincoln scorned, quote, He can compress the most words into the smallest idea of any man I know. We should, as writers, keep it simple. For most genres, the writing should be a clear window to the story. The writing should tell of the action or the characters or the background or set out the dialogue or some other element. The hand of the novelist should not be too evident. Every time we read gaping maw instead of mouth, we are seeing the too-evident hand of the novelist. Mark Steyn, the essayist, says, some art forms are heavy with authorial presence. That's Mark Steyn. Novels shouldn't be. It's possible to put too much writing into writing. In the movie Mozart, the emperor advised Mozart that he liked the tune, there were just too many notes. James Fenimore Cooper called it the turgid abuse of terms. In the wonderful cartoon strip, Calvin and Hobbes, little Calvin, the six-year-old boy, says to his tiger Hobbes, "'I used to hate writing assignments, but now I enjoy them. "'I realized that the purpose of writing is to inflate weak ideas.'" obscure poor reasoning, and inhibit clarity. With a little practice, writing can be an intimidating and impenetrable fog. Want to see my new book report? The Dynamics of Interbeing and Monological Imperatives in Dick and Jane, a study in psychic transrelational gender, gender modes. Why do writers produce work that is too complicated, too many words. Francine Prose says it's from the fear that one has too little of substance to say, and from the fond hope that faux ideas, they sound and look and seem like ideas but just don't happen to be ideas, can be bolstered and given weight by convoluted language. Here's an example of that. It's a parody. It's a parody of Complicated Writing, which, which was the purple prose winner of the bulwer lytton Bad Writing Contest, and it was submitted by Mike Peterson. Listen to this. As his small boat scudded before a brisk breeze under a sapphire sky dappled with cerulean clouds with indigo bases, through cobalt seas that deepened to navy nearer the boat and faded to azure at the horizon, Ian was at a loss as to why he felt blue. How should we keep our writing simple? The poet William Butler Yeats felt, quote, We should write out our thoughts in as nearly as possible the language we thought them in, as though in a letter to an intimate friend. We should not disguise them in any way, for our lives give them force, as the lives of people in plays give force to their words. Yeats was warning against, against being too artful. Uh, I don't mean to, to second-guess uh, second the Nobel laureate, but uh, who would dare do that? But I write better than I think. Were I to pour words onto a page as I thought them, I'd end up with an embarrassing jumble of half-formed monosyllabic grunts. Crafting the language rather than merely recording it as it occurs in our heads is necessary for most writers. But with too much crafting, we might end up with gaping maw So, I cross it out and write mouth. We all should. We should keep it simple, but not too simple. Here's one technique for clear writing that's simple, but not too simple. We should avoid the useless summary. Words that summarize rather than describe are are hollow. Here are some examples. She was beautiful. Uh, He was ugly. A lovely sunset. Saying she was beautiful robs the reader of the revelation about why she's beautiful. Her finely planed cheekbones. Her sticky red lips. Isn't that a wonderful phrase? Her flippant nose. Her skin as pale as candle wax. Instead of saying he was ugly, we should speak about it. We should show why he's ugly, a face like a bucket of mud. His nose was a rosy knob, bald as a peeled egg, eyes shallow as paint. I forget where I, I got those phrases, but they sound like Raymond Chandler. Describing a sunset in a new and interesting way is a challenge, but when a writer uses the phrase, a lovely sunset, He's thrown up his hands in surrender. The reader, and here's the key about these summary words. If we use a summary word like she was beautiful, the reader won't fill in the image in uh, her mind. If the writer describes a character as beautiful, the reader won't give that character memorable features or any features. The character remains beautiful vague in the reader's mind, a blur, uh, and so is less memorable. A character who is a blur in the reader's mind won't engage the reader. So we as writers need to build up that image in the reader's mind. Think of the great actress Lauren Bacall. Uh, She was in a a lot of movies in a long career. Some of her movies were opposite uh, Humphrey Bogart. And and she was, back then, and she remains a a famous beauty. Here's the worst sentence you could write about her. She is beautiful. It's conclusory, and it tells the reader almost nothing. The phrase, she is beautiful, asks the reader... To do the writer's work and the reader won't do it. The reader wants to relax with a good book, not work. And here's the second worst sentence you can write about Lauren Bacall. She has big eyes, high cheekbones, and wide lips. <laughs> These are bankrupt phrases, although you'll see them, uh, you'll see the term high cheekbones in every novel ever written, in, including mine. But how about these for her eyes, smoke-colored eyes, or her eyes were bright with emotions, Uh, or her eyes had a mirthless shine, or fathomless gray eyes, or her eyes were as pale as milk glass, a tuck of suspicion formed on her brow. The writer here, uh, using one of these phrases, is building an image of Lauren Bacall f- for the reader to remember and enjoy. How about for Lauren Bacall's mouth? A smile of mild cynicism. Oh, she was famous for that. A wintry smile. A quick smile passed across the surface of her face like a breeze. Isn't that wonderful? I. I, don't, I didn't write down who wrote it. It wasn't me. A street-smart grin. Oh, she was famous for that. She smiled with the benevolence of superior knowledge. Hers was an empty smile. Her lips were as red as arterial blood. That sounds like Raymond Chandler again. For her nose. A thin scimitar nose. Or a masterful nose. How about describing her whole face? An over-featured face. Her face looked moist and undefended. Her features were delicate without being weak. She was a gammon with an inexhaustible supply of expressions. She rearranged her face from the inside. Aren't those, aren't those good phrases? And wouldn't one or two or three of them give the reader a sharp image of Lauren Bacall? Here's another exercise. Think of Winston Churchill in the famous photograph by Karsh. Uh, the photographer was dealing with a subject, Churchill, who had little time and little patience. Karsh just couldn't get the pose he wanted. I think this was in 1945. He tried and tried again. Finally, in a brazen act, the photographer Karsh reached over and snatched Churchill's cigar out of his mouth and instantly snapped the photo, which became the most famous photo photo of the great man ever taken. Well, let's try to describe Churchill's face. He had a blood pudding of a face. Oh, that's accurate. His face was hard with thought. Well, that's certainly true in the Karsh photo. A sudden, ferocious scowl twisted his face into dark knots. A seamed face, or a face like a gnawed bone. For his mouth, we could try, he smiled with cold pleasure, or his mouth was sit was set in a stiff pedagogic line, thin and bloodless lips, a mulish mouth. How about for his eyes? His eyes grew small with cunning, or his eyes were shadowed and remote. Or glacialize. One of the great satisfying rewards of writing is creating a memorable phrase. These phrases fill the reader's senses. It's possible to go it's possible to go too far, though. I would uh, here too, I'd never second guess the great detective writer Raymond Chandler. But here's one I might have toned down, One, and it's one of his famous phrases. She was a blonde, the kind of woman that makes a priest kick the bishop in the stomach. <laughs> if a phrase is wonderful, the odds are that you'll want to use it more than once in your novel. Not on purpose, but because months have passed uh, in your writing and, and you may have forgotten you used it. And it'll it'll just pop in your head like a new a new phrase and use it again. We'll use it again. Uh, a phrase like the lapis sky." Oh, that's perfect. Uh, it's so much perfect. It's so perfect that it sticks out in the reader's mind. And the reader will remember it. That's why i I suggested in an earlier episode that we keep a list of Uh, our uh, good descriptions and our metaphors and uh, similes by chapter. Adding to this list on our computer, I call the list my used phrases list. Every time I come up with a a phrase I like, uh, I find a couple of them every chapter. And with this list, you can quickly check to see if you've used a phrase before (laughs) or and this may be even easier. Just use the global search function in your document. Of course, that's most systems. That's, prese- uh, that's pressing Control and F at the same time. And it'll ask in a little pop-up box, what's your phrase? If, and if you type in glacial eyes, gee, you've just thought of it. And you look, and there it is again in Chapter 2, which you wrote four months ago. Well, you won't use it again. We are talking about how sometimes we writers can abandon our task, and our first topic was uh, using summary words. Here's another way uh, we sometimes do that. It's a small thing, but uh, I like the topic. One of the finest writers in, in the history of the English language was James Boswell, and he could slip once in a while. Quote, words cannot describe our feelings, he wrote. I've read James Boswell's biography of Samuel Johnson and his London diaries, and he can, I know he can describe utterly anything with riveting prose. Here, when he says uh, words cannot describe our feelings, he's, having a, he's suffering a brief moment of laziness. Uh, another of uh, English language's great writers is Tom Wolfe. And in his discussion of modern architecture from, our, uh, from Bauhaus to our house, he writes, I wish there were some way I could convey the look on his face. It must have been some look. Wolfe was one of the most compelling writers ever. I wish he would have given uh, this description of the fellow's face a shot. I've chosen these exceptionally skilled writers. Uh, Everyone has a day off. We should try not to. Describe something. We shouldn't tell our readers that it can't be described. Quote, no subject, though, is so complicated that it can't be explained in clear English, says Patricia T. O'Connor in Words Fail Me. And here's another way we, we sometimes uh, take the day off and uh, abandon our task, and it's, I call it the cheap reference. Uh, the cheap reference is where the writer incorporates something uh, or someone entirely, rather than doing the work of creating an image in the reader's mind. His face resembles SpongeBob's. Our task as writers is to paint a picture for the reader, not to to cause the reader to recall some specific photograph from memory. To bring up Spongebob in the reader's mind rather than describe your character's ferociously yellow complexion, his bug eyes, his porous complexion, and his ear-to-ear grin, Uh, to bring up To say your character resembles Spongebob or anyone else is to cheat the reader, and it it surrenders control of our writing to a constant. Uh, Calling up Spongebob or John Wayne quickly sets an image in the reader's mind, and it fixes it there. So we as the writer don't have much control over the character's description now that it's embedded in the reader's mind. It does little good to go on to suggest that while the character resembles SpongeBob, he was was less animated, or he was less squishy, or he was taller and a better dresser. The reader still has SpongeBob fixed in his mind, front and center, doesn't matter what they uh, they uh, the reader subsequently reads regarding the character. The building resembled the Taj Mahal. The spaceship looked like a seven forty-seven. She sounded like Ella Fitzgerald. These are all cheap references. We we as writers should try to make a description that the clearly lets the reader know what our image is. Here's a topic that uh, I like to think about because it, it can be a challenge for writers. It's the powerful metaphor or other powerful phrases. One of the most rewarding aspects of writing is inventing a powerful metaphor. A metaphor is a comparison between two things based on a resemblance or a similarity without using the word like or the word as. If like or as is used, it's a simile. His guilt was a harness is a metaphor. His guilt was like a harness is a simile. In The Long Goodbye, Raymond Chandler wrote, I got the drunk up the stairs somehow. He was eager to help, but his legs were rubber. Sooner or later, I may figure out why you like being a kept poodle. Those are similes. Edward Hirsch, in his How to Read a Poem, talks about Robert Frost and metaphor, and he, he says the term metaphor comes from the Latin metaphora, which in turn derives from the Greek the Greek "metapherine, meaning to transfer. And indeed, um, a metaphor transfers the connotations or elements from one thing or idea to another. It is a transfer of energies, a mode of interpretation, a matter of identity and difference. That's uh, Edward Hirsch. Here are some famous uh, metaphors and similes, just wonderful phrases. Here's Joseph Conrad in The Secret Agent. (coughs) Only then did he find himself rolling head over heels like a shot rabbit. Here's uh, William Styron in Sophie's Choice. Sometimes during my thirties, the nickname and I mysteriously parted company. Stingo merely evaporated like a wan ghost out of my existence, leaving me indifferent to the loss. Here is... Uh, Michael Ondanje in The English Patient. Moments before sleep are when she feels most alive, leaping across fragments of the day, bringing each moment into the bed with her like a child with school books and pencils. Here is uh, Margaret Atwood in The Blind Assassin. A hot wind was blowing around my head, the strands of my hair lifting and swirling in it like ink spilled in water. Isn't that wonderful? Here is uh, Margaret Atwood again in The Handmaid's Tale. Time has not stood still. It has washed over me, washed me away, as if I'm nothing more than a woman of sand, left by a careless child too near the water. And here's William Faulkner in As I Lay Dying. Her eyes look like lamps blaring up just before the oil is gone. And Joseph Conrad in Lord Jim. I would have given it anything for the power to soothe her frail soul, tormenting itself in its invincible ignorance, like a small bird beating about the cruel wires of a cage. Here uh, is Bram Stoker in Dracula. The other was fair, as fair as can be, with great masses of golden hairs and eyes like pale sapphires. Margaret Mitchell and Gone with the Wind. The very mystery of him excited her curiosity like a door that had neither lock nor key. Gosh, isn't that wonderful? Louisa May Alcott and Little Women. She tried to get rid of the kitten which had scrambled up her back and stuck like a burr just out of reach. And J.M. Berry in in, uh, Peter Pan. Her romantic mind was like the tiny boxes, one within the other, that come from the puzzling east. And Zane Gray in Riders of the Purple Sage. Her father had inherited that temper, and at times, like antelope fleeing before fire on the slope, his people fled from his red rages. Why is inventing a powerful metaphor or other reference so rewarding? The literary critic B.R. Meyer says, When Vladimir Nabokov talks of midges, quote, continuously darning the air in one spot, end quote, or the, quote, square echo, end quote, of a car door slamming, I feel what Philip Larkin wanted readers of his poetry to feel. Yes, I've never thought of it that way, but that's how it is." Uh, B.R. Myers continues, the pleasure that accompanies this sensation is almost addictive. For many, myself included, it's the most important reason to read both poetry and prose. I just love coming up with a, a strong metaphor or simile or some other strong phrase. It's one of the big rewards of writing. I wish I could do it more often, but I sure like it when I do. We've come to the end of this podcast. Uh, Until next time, this is Jim Thayer. Please keep tapping those keys.